This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Height. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Stuff we're here to talk about in this episode include... The secret origins of Ken and Robin. Mapping the Paris Catacomb. Open licensing. And John D. We average nine new titles a day. That's over 60 a week. And we've got well over 15,000 RPG titles online right now. Drive through RPG, the one true source for RPGs. It's time once again to ask Ken and Robin. So let's ask Ken and Robin. Taffy Finger asks Ken and Robin about our upbringing and influence. In other words, how did we get to be so cool? And that's just not, not just regular cool, that's K-E-W-L cool. Yeah, that's true. And we're working in a weird economy of coolness uh, by society standards, if, if we are judged as being K-E-W-L, but I will accept that nonetheless. Yeah, no, I, I, certainly, am, uh, I certainly am willing to accept the, the plaudits of those uh, better informed and younger than me about what is cool and what is not cool, because God knows normally a doughy 47-year-old white guy is not who you ask what is cool. <laughs> so, uh, what is your secret origin story, Ken? Where do you uh, where do you come from, and how did you become the Ken you are today? I, I think a lot of it is just that I was raised to be this. I was like Doc Savage, you know how uh, his father, um, uh, Clark Savage Sr., raised him, you know, to become the perfect crime fighter uh, by you know giving him isometric exercises as a baby and all the rest of that stuff. Uh, my dad uh, uh, wanted a history geek to talk to because he didn't marry one, and so he raised me to be. That and I think a lot of my KEWLness flows out of basically being a giant history nerd, and that is is really where a lot of it comes from. I mean, I was fortunately positioned uh, sociolo- sociologically in that I was you know going through adolescence during America's third great UFO flap and during um, uh, you know Star Wars mania. Uh, I was, you know, I was young enough to watch uh, uh, Star Wars and be excited and old enough to watch uh, Star Trek in its first uh, network airing. So I'm in that, you know, sort of uh, ground zero of nerd in America. Um, You know, I I grew up as a science fiction fan, so I absorbed all the same influences as everyone else. And of course, I was, you know, part of generation one, not generation zero, but certainly generation one of role playing games. I mean, I was playing, you know, I was playing D&D before they had all three advanced D&D books, which I think makes me old school. Although I'm sure James Malashevsky even now is shaking his fist at the at the thing and saying, no, but it, it's older school than, than most people, certainly. And uh, we were we were um, uh, uncool before playing D&D was uh, so uncool that people knew it was uncool. That's how uncool we were. And where did you grow up? I grew up in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma, which is a delightful place to grow up. And it's, uh, from what I understand... When I go back every so often, it's even a more delightful place now to uh, be, you know, in your 20s, which it was not when I left it and moved to Chicago, which is a delightful place to do anything. But I think the combination of growing up in Oklahoma City and that sort of, you know, atmosphere of, um, uh, you know, uh, parents who wanted me to talk nonsense about uh, history and Sherlock Holmes and Tarzan and, you know, pop culture feeding me all this wonderful stuff and Gary and Dave inventing D&D. I think that sort of, you know, was the matrix. And then I moved to Chicago and spent, um, uh, uh, you know, so far 
22-odd years uh, being even odder. And how did you fall into gaming? How did you discover role-playing games? I discovered role-playing games because I had a friend in grade school. This was like 7th or 8th grade who was into D&D and was buying the books. And he uh, had the monster manual, the AD&D monster manual out, and I looked at it. And I was captivated because it was a whole book of monsters, some of which I'd never heard of. And so I took it home and wrote up my own monsters based on sort of uh, stuff out of Edgar Rice Burroughs or, or other things. I think the first one I did might have been the Banff, the uh, Tigery uh, Predator from uh, from Edgar Rice Burroughs, maybe the first D&D monster I ever made up. But I made up a bunch of monsters uh, and then brought them back to him. And he was like, these monsters are awesome. And he, he, he sort of showed me what was going on with the game. So you were designing this, these monsters without having played yet? Yeah, I was just interpolating it based on the on the um, uh, on the information given in the in the rule book already. So you know, I would say, well, a banth is not as tough as a gorgon, but it's certainly tougher than a regular lion, so it's going to have these points. And how long did it take you from seeing all this stuff to making the inductive leap to what role playing is? Because that's something that's not necessarily immediately apparent on the page of those first books, and especially not on the pages of the Monster Manual, if that's what you're starting with. Yeah, that's what I was starting with. And then we played, um, probably, either we played in 8th grade or we played in the summer between 8th and ninth grade, that buddy of mine and I and a couple of our other friends. And then by high school, I was totally into it. And I was, you know, running and being run. And this was through, I think, um, uh, the, the, the Blue Book, whichever one that was. Uh, and, and we would, you know, kick down doors and kill orcs and take stuff. And it was great. I mean, it was uh, at, at that time, I was already a big war gamer, tabletop um, uh, hex encounter war games as part of the, my dad's uh, attempt to to raise uh, someone to play war games with, and so I sort of translated war gaming into Dungeons and Dragons pretty intuitively, I guess. I mean, so you we, really are a second generation geek. Yeah, oh, I'm 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 uh, I'm I'm as old school as they come. I think. Well, not as they come. I mean, you and I both know people like Greg Stafford or Ken St. Andre who are older school than us. But right. Well, they'd be first gen, but you right, were yeah. raised by a geek to to be a geek and to yeah. play a squad leader or whatever it was with your dad. Gettysburg, before they had X's, when it was still squares. <laughs> That that is a primordial times. So so Robin, um, uh, what about what about yourself? Did is there some sort of Canadian uh, program like there is to produce boy bands that also produces role playing game designers that you took advantage of? Or um, in this way, uh, I am your opposite because my uh, I was uh, raised in the small town of Orillia, Ontario, Canada. Throughout my entire childhood until the day I left for university, it had a stable population of twenty four thousand people. It was a great place to be a little kid and a great place to be a senior citizen. Not sure, but in between those two uh, bands of the age spectrum. And my parents uh, did not have uh, geeky or even really bookish interests at all. So there's always sort of a family joke of how, you know, where the heck did I and my uh, younger brother, who's five years younger than me and uh, also was interested in gaming and books and comics and all of these things, uh, and was, uh, you know, where did these two intellectuals come from uh, in this family? Uh, my dad was a, a draftsman. Uh, my mom, when I was young, was a stay-at-home mom. And uh, once we got a little older, she started uh, working various uh, retail jobs around uh, garden centers and gardening. And she was a a landscaper for a while. Now she's a custodian at her church. My dad is retired now. Uh, my mom actually, uh, just over the Canadian Thanksgiving weekend, I was up to visit her because she just had a hip replacement. Oh my God. Um, and uh, she uh, 
was annoyed by having all of this pain in her leg that had to be rectified this way because it got in the way of her using her kayak. <laughs> well, that is a problem in Canada. I mean, if you don't have a kayak, you might as well just cut yourself off from society, as I understand well, it. Well, I have to say, I am not a kayak owner myself. And uh, <laughs> uh, and so we were sitting and talking to her, and uh, she's always been very, very active. And, of course, with a hip replacement, you've got to basically spend six weeks in, in recovery, which is astonishing in another way that it's no big deal to replace somebody's hip anymore. But And that uh, it's only six weeks in recovery. Exactly. Uh, but she's, you know, supposed to take it easy and you're not allowed to cross your legs or to bend too far over. She's not allowed to drive her car because of the way the seats are configured. She can drive in other people's cars as long as the seats are tilted back. But she's got to basically alternate sleeping and very carefully sitting for the next six weeks. And so we were asking her if there was something that she was going to do to occupy herself because she's she's a reader but she can't you know read 24 7 and uh she isn't much for tv she likes to be out active and doing things and you know crocheting that doesn't interest her so she, finally she said well there's this couple of chairs that i'd like to refinish it's like <laughs> so, so is your, are you is, getting the concept is, is the plan that you're going to 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 work out some sort of vice suspension system so the chairs all hang like over her, um, uh, over her, over her bench, and she's got varnish and sawdust dripping down into her face the whole time. I'm just hopeful that she does not have uh, over optimistic goals. Now, I did grow up in a household that was fanciful in a lot of ways because uh, what my dad would do for my brother and I is, uh, while we were away uh, visiting my grandparents' inactive farm in a a further north area of Ontario called Muskoka, we'd be gone for a couple of weeks. And then when we came back, he would have built something for us using his uh, woodworking skills and his draftsmanship. So, for example, one year we would show up and there would be a giant model canvas tent that he had handmade and filled with plastic uh, uh, circus animals. Or another year there was a giant puppet theater designed and painted like a castle that had both a central stage for marionettes and little side areas for hand puppets. Um, another year we came back and there was a giant fort on stilts in the backyard. Oh, the uh, fort which, on stilts. Uh, there was a uh, ladder that you would uh, you could haul down from the, the fort uh, on a, a rope. And you would go up the ladder, and then to escape from the fort, you would go down a slide that he constructed fully himself from wood and sheet metal. Inside the fortress uh, was a cannon that he constructed from wood, a piece of top copper uh, tubing. And uh, what you would do is you would shoot styrofoam balls out the front of it, because that was, speaking of primordial days, this was when you could still purchase those little red firecrackers that, of course, have blown off so many kids and blinded them over the years until they were finally banned. But It probably hasn't blinded that many kids. It probably just, you know, blinded them in one eye tops. Oh, well, yes, but, you know, nanny state and all. But anyway, yeah. uh, back then we had our uh, our cannon that we could shoot styrofoam balls uh, 40 feet down into the backyard uh, with. Um, so there was certainly uh, an air of invention around the house uh, and a support for the idea that we wanted to read comic books or you know, and when I started reading science fiction, they were excited that I was reading and they, you know, weren't stopping to look at the fact that this was, you know, analog magazine in the 70s and it was full of all sorts of dirty 70s sex and so forth. When I when I started collecting um, uh, books on black magic and alchemy and everything else for my Call of Cthulhu games, um, my mom uh, came into my room for whatever reason and she looked at my shelf full of black magic books and she said, this would worry me if 
every other surface in your room was not also covered with books. <laughs> which, which I guess was sort of her way of saying that if I had any, you know, black magic related confessions, this was the time to make them. But, you know, it, it, it really is, you know, just sort of, you know, it, it's, it's a big occult library, but it's not that much bigger than any of my other libraries, I guess, certainly at the time. So that's a lesson for parents at home. Before confronting your child about his occult collection, just look at it proportionally compared to the rest of his library. And exactly. I, I don't know what the threshold is for worrying about little Jimmy uh, summoning something, but uh, presumably you were below that marker. Well, like like everything else, you know, it's um, uh, it's in the titles. If, you, if you're really worried about summoning, you need to consult your, your area um, uh, arcanist. <laughs> Um, so anyway, uh, I always, from a very, very young age, thought of myself as a uh, a creator of some sort. Initially, when I was uh, a really young kid, I thought of myself uh, that I would write comic books for a living, which, weirdly enough... I, <laughs> which you did, briefly. I, I did briefly, and it turned out to not be satisfactory, really, on either side of that equation. <laughs> um, uh, but I remember, you know, I would draw, you know, comics featuring the Disney Robin Hood characters and so forth, and then... Uh, later, when I became interested in theater, I saw myself as possibly a playwright. And uh, as I've said many times in other podcasts, through an elaborate uh, mechanism involving getting involved in a uh, fanzine called Alarms and Excursions, which is an amateur press association, I wound up uh, making a network of what I thought was hobby activity to people like Jonathan Tweet and Steve Jackson, and it turned into a professional opportunity. And from there, I have been using the hobby game industry and its associated ancillary markets as uh, an outlet for my creative work. And a, and a test bed for further creative work as well, obviously. Indeed. Um, and so your, uh, and I think probably that this is the subtext of this uh, question is uh, how, not only how did we get to be so cool, but how does one get to be cool? How does one move into a uh, career uh, such as it is in game writing. And so what was your uh, launch into the professional side of things? My launch into the professional side of things was basically twofold. Uh, my, again, like you, I've told the origin story of how I was rocketed to Earth from the Dune Planet um, uh, nerd uh, generations ago. But the uh, I, one of my players in my Call of Cthulhu campaign, one of my Call of Cthulhu campaigns, and the fact that I had more than one should tell you everything you need to know about my high school career. Um, one of the players in my Call of Cthulhu campaign uh, went to work for Iron Crown, and when they got a copy, or when he got a copy of the playtest uh, document for Chaosium's Nephilim role-playing game, uh, the first draft of, the, of what became the core book, he realized that the person most uh, suitable to playtester was not him, but the guy whose, you know, library of occult manuscripts had powered so many delightful Call of Cthulhu games, namely me. So he sent me the manuscript and said, you should provide Chaosium with feedback on this, uh, on this, uh, on this game manuscript. And at the same time, uh, Steve Jackson had, uh, the, uh, the old, um, what we want, uh, it was a newsletter way back in those days, uh, about, you know, how you would prepare something for, for GURPS, uh, to be published. And, Myself and Craig Newmeyer and Mike Schiffer, who are all uh, history students at the University of Chicago, I was a grad student, they were undergrads, had just sort of, you know, been writing alternate histories off and on, you know, just to amuse ourselves and figured if we put them down on paper and sent them into Steve Jackson, we'd be able to afford, you know, easily, uh, you know, more GURPS books at the very least. And so uh, simultaneously, Steve uh, read and liked that submission and 
uh, Greg Stafford read and liked uh, my uh, backstaff about Nephilim. And so I, I became a, a published game writer pretty much simultaneously for Chaosium and Steve Jackson. So I guess the overall point that I would make to people who are looking for role models in whatever creative field is that if you're looking to repeat what somebody else did, those windows have already closed, that that person has moved into a window shaped like them and they are currently blocking it. Yeah, right. <laughs> and uh, especially now that, you know, we're talking about a world where uh, this fanzine was mimeographed and assembled in a way that mimicked the early internet. Ken is talking about getting a paper newsletter from Steve Jackson Games. So obviously, on that level, everything is different and the opportunities are changing uh, not only in an or not in an incremental manner, but in an exponential uh, manner. And nobody knows where publishing is going, except that possibly the hobby game industry is sort of at the vanguard of a lot of things like Kickstarter and so on. But I would think that the uh, basic points, though, if you back up to a level of detail are one, be interested in things two, be interested in a lot of different things three, be interested in a menu of things that other people aren't. So you, the combination of different things that interest you will be what makes you interesting to other uh, people when you decide to start creating uh, stuff, whatever it is. And then the fourth thing is simply, you know, both of our stories are about sort of falling kind of accidentally into a network of people and then being positioned to make the most of it. And so be position yourself to make the most of it and then be open to connections to people. And no one is just going to come up, drive up to your house in an ice cream truck and ask you to write a supplement. You have to make yourself known in a way that makes people want to work with you. And other than that, the rules are changing every six months. Yeah, I mean, certainly, you know, to, to be a, a, a famous and well-beloved game designer now, really, the only thing you need is, you know, good game design chops and the ability not to sound like a complete asshat on the internet. And that second one is really kind of optional uh, when you look at a number of uh, people uh, and their uh, careers. <laughs> but, uh, you know, right now you get, you know, someone like um, uh, uh, Jason Morningstar, who has written, you know, what, four great games in a row. And back in our day, he would still be sort of, you know, grinding out GURP supplements or whatever, and just be at the point where maybe he was able to talk, you know, a White Wolf into letting him develop a, a, a mainline supplement. And he's written, you know, four terrific uh, tabletop games that are all independent and, uh, and and are great. And and Jason is just, you know, the one that pops instantly to mind. But that same, you know, career arc worked for 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 everyone who's who's sort of written the game since the turn of the century. That they write the game, they put it up on the internet, and uh, it uh, it attracts attention because they're really great game designers. There have never been more opportunities, and therefore fewer excuses. Exactly. Yeah. And also. The other great thing about our particular sub-niche is that I think getting in contact with the creators in role-playing is easier than it is even in other geek-friendly industries. I mean, I, you're, you're certainly more likely to get um, uh, FaceTime with Robin at Gen Con than you are Neil Gaiman at Anywhere or even, you know, Grant Morrison at Comic-Con. And I would, I would say that uh, Robin certainly is, you know, to the extent that our field has a... Um, uh, a, a Grant Morrison, uh, Robin is right up there in terms of, of both uh, creative ability and impact on other creators. So, you know, and Robin is, 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 now that he drinks beer, he's even more accessible, frankly. 
<laughs> uh, well, uh, lest we enter a, a flattery singularity, I think uh, we've uh, talked about ourselves enough, and we'll move on to talk about something else in our next segment. Okay. Okay, it's time to grab your protractors and your compass roses and once again enter the relatively new confines of the cartography hut. Uh, now, we've been trying to look at different ways to talk about maps and mapping since one of our beloved sponsors is Pro Fantasy Software and other potential sponsors. Let this be an object lesson to you if you want to gingerly direct the content of this podcast. Pony up! Yeah. Um, the problem with this is that maps are a visual medium, and of course the podcast is an auditory medium, so we could spend uh, 15 minutes of my describing a map to Ken while he elaborately maps it out square by square, or I thought we could just look at various places that have cool maps associated with them, uh, put the map up on our website, uh, kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. You want to look at, uh, scroll down, find this episode, and uh, you will see before you a series of maps from uh, Pro Fantasy's uh, Temples, Tombs, and Catacombs program for its Source Map series. And these are great maps of the real world done up in manipulatable campaign cartographer format or with a viewer if you don't have the program itself where you can zoom around in it. And what we've got here are the Paris Catacombs. Uh, and I didn't know very much about the Paris Catacombs until recently, but I bet, Ken, you still know more than I do about them. So <laughs> would you like to have at it? Well, the Paris Catacombs, I mean, basically they're one of the sort of the, the great uh, standard underground settings in um, in in horror fiction, in sort of uh, the, the imaginative uh, state of, of, uh, of sort of gothic fantasy. I mean, the, you, you used to set all kinds of, um, uh, of of horrible stories about young women taken away from middle-class families and ravished by dangerous-looking men, uh, which, fortunately, popular culture has gone way beyond that. Uh, and so uh, they were the setting for the Mysteries of Paris. They are implicated in all kinds of uh, other uh, great sort of adventures. I think Anne Rice sets a bunch of her um, uh, vampire chronicles in the Paris catacombs. Basically, they uh, began as... Um, you know, wait, places to put dead people in Paris. They were um, uh, expanding the cemeteries out because there was only so much space underneath the churches in um, in London. What they did, uh, basically, I guess a, a century and a half later, is they just added new cemeteries way out, way out of town, which eventually France uh, had to do as well. But for for a while, I mean, Paris was a much bigger city than London for a great long time, and they would sort of dig out more and deeper uh, tunnels to put uh, dead folks in. Because if you are a Parisian, you don't want a simple matter like being dead to force you to move out of the city. Exactly. Right. It's, it's like Chicago. You don't want to be buried in the city so you can still be active in politics. <laughs> the, uh, the, so they, um, they also apparently, I think um, Paris is built on a, a fairly uh, substantial level of bedrock. And I think there was lead mines there even in Roman times. And so they already had uh, tunnels uh, sort of running under the city anyway that they could sort of link up. And between sort of the... The, the generic uh, job of, of extending uh, the, the, the cemeteries and the fact that they had these sort of pre-existing tunnels and then, of course, the Paris sewers, you wind up with this, this sort of delightful Rococo inter, uh, interleaving network of tunnels, tombs, 
uh, graves, passages, shafts, uh, ossuaries, all manner of things. And, and then it's become ever since, I mean, given that France uh, spent pretty much the majority of its uh, time up until uh, the 19th century as one form or another of dictatorship, it had a much stronger degree of uh, identification with the Bohemian and the Antinomian and people who, for whatever reason, thought that Par Parisian society, uh, as entwined as it was with uh, king and church, was uh, indolorable. And so they would go down on the catacombs and, and plot or just, you know, drink absinthe and, and wine. And uh, since both of those are, are terrific, uh, it sort of has an artistic uh, and romantic cachet that simply going down into the sewers in Kansas City does not. Now, the thing that startled me the most about the Paris catacombs is how recent they are. If you think of all of these piles of uh, bones stacked together, uh, you assume, oh, well, this is, you know, must be Roman or maybe medieval, but actually it was uh, startlingly uh, recently that this was erected. Or dug, as it were. Um, yeah, I mean, it, like I said, they start doing the um, uh, the expansion of these um, of these graveyards in the 16th century, and then they're still, you know, sticking people down there uh, in the Napoleonic period. Uh, you've got uh, the Scarlet Pimpernel is probably running around down in those catacombs, uh, rescuing uh, Aristos, and uh, certainly, um, I'm sure, you know, Jean Valjean must have hidden out in them briefly. So, how would you use uh, the Paris catacombs in a uh, Knight's Black Agents? Uh, episode set in Paris. I think that, uh, like I say, the the sort of the, the romantic and the gothic uh, import of the catacombs is such that you either really want to play into that, and so the catacombs are honest to God, where the vampires have their you know their 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 main crypt, their big headquarters, their uh, crashed UFO, whatever it is, that gives the vampires their their super awesomeness. And once the game gets to Paris, all the players are going to know. At some point, we're going to have to go into the damn catacombs, aren't we? And it becomes the sort of the threat that you hold over their heads. And so the, the Renfields and the Nosferatus and the ghouls are all sort of dropping through the sewers and vanishing, or they're going into the Paris underground, the metro, and, and, and jumping off the train between stations, and you don't find them again because they've slunk into the catacombs somehow. And that would be sort of the ongoing presence. It's like the Death Star in Star Wars, that you know that at some point you're going to get dragged into, you're going to get captured there, something awful is going to happen. And then, you know, one hopes that unlike the Death Star, you don't destroy it because Paris is quite nice and you don't want it to fall into, you know, a, a great hole full of burning undead. But uh, but that, I would use it both as looming presence and as a locus of uh, really dangerous gunfights. I really love the image of the fact that so much in central Paris, you cannot have a basement. You cannot dig down because that part of the city is sitting on the bones of the dead. Mm-hmm. Um, Paris, of course, features in a project we're working on together, uh, which is still in the draft stage, and it's uh, Dreamhounds of Paris, which is our both our Paris supplement and our Dreamland supplement for Trail of Cthulhu. And the premise there is that you are playing the major figures of the Surrealist movement after they discovered that their particular way of looking at art in the world enables them to consciously alter the landscape of dreams. Now, of course, we know that in Lovecraftiana, a tunnel network full of bones will, of course, also be full of ghouls. Mm -hmm. And so, and of course, ghouls uh, can move through their tunnel networks uh, between the waking and the sleeping worlds, uh, just as they would uh, move through any other physical space. You don't have to fall asleep to get to the dreamlands if you go through ghoul tunnels. And of course, uh, here, there is a protocol for that. The uh, French alchemist Nicolas Flamel is still on the scene as a ghoul, and he is the gatekeeper who decides whether he will allow you through 
the gates physically into the dreamlands. For example, uh, when Man Ray uh, takes uh, Robert Desnos and his uh, lover Kiki de Montparnasse through the dreamlands to film his classic avant-garde film uh, Starfish, they can't just dream their way there because there's no way to get the camera there and the film back. So, of course, they have to take the uh, camera through the ghoul tunnels with the permission of Nicholas Flamel. And uh, usually a ghoul tunnel, of course, becomes strewn with bones and it's rather messy. But, of course, these are French ghouls, so they are very punctilious at uh, keeping everything uh, shipshape and in order. But right. if they're messy, it's it's a fashion statement. It's not just sloth. Indeed. Now, now, uh, I actually wanted to ask that uh, when we, since you brought up Dreamhounds, and if you hadn't, I would have. Um, did the Surrealists uh, engage themselves with these catacombs? Was that something that sort of sparked their imagination, or did they think that was all, t- you know, 2 to tw- uh, 19th century and they didn't really bother with it. What was their response? It's probably the the association with prior Bohemians that led them not to really even deal with it very much. You've certainly got imagery, uh, a lot of skull imagery, especially in Dali, uh, but they were opposed to the sort of prior symbolist generation mm-hmm. who uh, thought of themselves as a th- Aesthetes, and that Andre Breton, the sort of Pope of Surrealism, as he was sometimes called, was very against the idea of arts for art's sake, that really art was a weapon to create this sort of psychic break that would allow for a utopian revolution. Right. And uh, it's odd, though, that they didn't engage with it because they did go on surrealist walking tours of Paris uh, where they would attempt to achieve an altered state of consciousness simply by observing the strange coincidences between uh, things. And this is sort of a elaboration of their previous experiments with seances. Although that, I was going to say that again is something that they get from their symbolist uh, forebears. That whole cult of the flaneur is another big uh, component of the symbolists and the decadence. Uh, that they're, in a lot of ways, like you say, rebelling it against, at least politically, they're rebelling against. So why they didn't seize on the catacombs as being rich in that way is difficult to say. Uh, certainly they weren't averse to death imagery, but it doesn't really seem to be on their radar. Hmm. And maybe Nicholas Flamel just uh, realized that um, uh, too many surrealists hang around the place and uh, he does, his maps don't work. Well, of course, in the fictional world, the, the reason that you don't see a lot of the catacombs in the official records of the surrealist movement is that they are using it all the time and do not want to uh, piss off Nicholas Flamel. Right. Yeah, obviously, um, you know, they're... Uh, and this is just a good sort of general lesson for gaming. You, know, you can either use the fact that someone obsesses about something as a element in the game or the fact that they don't mention it becomes a mystery that you can explain by the fact that they were totally using it. Yes. Just like if you uh, see any culture that has a uh, taboo against something, if they're taking the trouble to forbid something, that means lots of people are doing it. Exactly. Uh, Well, I think that is a thorough exploration of this map and the Paris catacombs. So uh, let us now exit both this veil of piled skulls and the cartography hut that led us there.
Having done some of the business of gaming, let us now talk some of the business of gaming. Uh, this time, uh, we're looking at sort of the notion of the open license and what that means for gaming, what that means. It's not just the good old um, uh, uh, D20, the SRD. Now, more I think more systems than not may be open or almost open. And so what, is, what does that mean for us, Robin, as people who are both fundamentally creative and fundamentally overworked. Well, I find myself thinking about this in particular at this moment because as we speak, the Kickstarter for Hill Folk and its underlying rule system, drama system, is still on the go. And we have already surpassed what I thought would be the ultimate stretch goal, which was to make the rules available via an open license. And so now I have to figure out exactly what the terms of that open license will be. And I've also feel a debt to the people who have funded the campaign because although the rule system belongs to everyone or will belong to everyone once we do the paperwork and release the SRD, which will probably happen after the main release of the game, the question then becomes, you know, those people are, are stakeholders and they deserve a say in how things go. The simplest possible thing to do is just to declare it the rules themselves open and in the public domain, but there is a weird complicating factor with a gaming license, which is if you want people to use your rule set, you need to provide a way for them to protect, if they choose to do so, which they often do, the intellectual property that they put on top of it. So you don't want someone who is publishing the Star Trek drama system uh, game should such a thing arise to inadvertently backdoor Star Trek stuff into the public domain. So this then opens up the whole question of not only how to make your license as permissive as possible to allow as many people as possible to use it, but also to make it protective to the people who want to use it. My understanding, which admittedly is so far relatively amateur, is that the uh, the standard open game license does a pretty good job of, of threading that needle and providing the differential between product identity and uh, uh, open game mechanics. Is there is that what you're, you're thinking is, as your default, or is there some problem with the OGL, some bear trap in the road? The issues with the, the OGL are uh, at least twofold. Let's, um, one of them is just that people associate it with D20, that they think of OGL as synonymous with D20, so that if you want to make it clear that this is something that is very different from D20, as Drama System indeed is, that you may want to find a different way to label it, even if you're using it as a model. You also have a lot of people who are very interested in free IP who do kind of have issues with the uh, OGL and the way that it can be uh, sort of clawed back and the way that it kind of sort of uh, seems to belong uh, if not to Hasbro, uh, to a, a strange uh, netherworld of rights, so that although they can't actually have takesies backsies on uh, the D20 license, for example, uh, when the powers that were in the D&D department during the launch of 4 uh, tried to sort of claw it back by uh, allowing a much less permissive license to people who were willing to forever forego producing D20 products. And of course, that backfired big time. Yeah, but the but that, the D20 license is a separate thing from the OGL. The OGL, I mean, Fate uses the OGL, for God's sake, and they're certainly in no danger of being mistaken for D20 in the marketplace or anywhere else. Right, and indeed that may be the example to follow. And uh, so the tricky thing there is to work out 
you know, how many people, when they hear OGL, think of the OGL and how many think of D20. And, 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 and the other thing is you don't have to write OGL really anywhere except inside the book where at the very back with a bunch of, you know, tiresome small print, you say the drama system is, part, is uh, covered by the open gaming license and here's a copy. Bang. I mean, you don't even have to say on the on the front cover of the book that. Right. And and I would certainly like to dispense with annoying small print as much as possible. Well, the annoying small print is kind of, you know, tantamount to producing any sort of uh, open content unless you actually, you know, honest to God, either make it uh, copy lefted or uh, what's the one um, that uh, the uh, Eclipse Faith has? Uh, Creative Commons? Yeah, exactly. Creative Commons. Uh, the, they, they release theirs under Creative Commons, um, but... Again, is there is there some uh, let's move back around? Is there a reason that that's a problem, or is that because it's harder to separate out the um, uh, the content than the uh, than the product identity? Yeah, I think that's it. Is that the the product identity concept really belongs to the OGL and things related to the OGL, and that you if you want people to use your uh, rules but still own their property, you uh, want to give them that option. And I'm not. Uh, sure to what extent uh, Eclipse Phase makes its IP available to everyone, and I have a feeling they do as well. They do. They, um, they're they very... Um, I'm, I'm buddies with Rob, and he is, he is both... He is an anarchist of the word and of the deed, by God. And uh, if you wanted to right now, you listeners could download a copy of uh, Eclipse Phase with everything, I think, except the art, and go to town and publish your own version of Eclipse Phase with My Little Pony or Cthulhu or whatever other uh, thing you think you can rip off uh, into it, and as long as you don't charge for it, everyone's golden. And I think also you can look at the history of the way the uh, various open licensing has evolved over the, the years and see in it a sort of mini-history of uh, role-playing games, at least for the length of period that that concept existed. So the the granddaddy of them all would be Fudge, and the idea there was really just a purely creative one and not a, a business one particularly, but it was an idea of getting those rules out there and getting something that existed beyond the commercial marketplace. Then you move to the uh, the D20 license in particular, which was an open license designed to sell a lot of books, that it was part of a Ryan Dancy's marketing scheme and one that I think worked brilliantly because it refocused the intent, the creative attention and commercial energy of virtually all of role-playing for a period of four or five years back to D&D at a time when the energy and excitement had moved away from D&D, and that influenced a whole generation of designers. So there was a, a period of time when people could do a lot of gaming work uh, and not necessarily get attention that would exist outside of the D20 sphere, aside from you know your superstars like Monty Cook and so forth. He had a presence beforehand, but people who jumped in and started doing a lot of D20 stuff, didn't manage to build the sort of reputation for themselves that they might have had they been designing their own core games. But if you were uh, Wizards of the Coast, you possibly, as far as I can see, sold more role-playing game books in that period of time than had have ever been sold before or since. Yeah, I'm, I'm not sure that we have all the numbers to say before or since, but certainly they sold a hell of a lot of role-playing games uh, for this uh, century, uh, I mean, it was it was a huge success and would probably have registered as a success even back in the day. I don't know that you know when you know AD and D was selling to you know every uh, high school every high school student who ever had a purple nurple uh, that that was not going to be more copies that the good old um, uh, three books 
uh, hadn't sold more, but they certainly sold, you know, a million copies of the player's handbook or something. Right, but if you were to take all of the D20 books that everybody produced mm -hmm. and actually sold, let alone the ones that sat in warehouses... Yeah, no, certainly if you add all the all the third-party stuff, yeah, I think that you, you even beat the, the glory days. Um, and then, again, I, I want to point out, before we leave the topic too much, that there's a bunch of the OSR stuff has been released under open uh, gaming license... The Mongoose version of Traveler is uh, an open gaming license now, although obviously the setting is still uh, the property of uh, Mark Miller or uh, someone of that ilk. And uh, there, there's lots of other uh, various... Uh, uh, those are, the, I think, the, the really big names. Uh, the, the warp system that underlies Over the Edge has been right, made yes. uh, open uh, content in celebration of its 20th anniversary. And, and so there's... Um, uh, so, so there's... It's not all uh, D20 by any stretch of the imagination. And there's lots and lots of of OGL stuff that is also uh, not under the D20 license for one reason or another. Uh, but it, it does involve some, uh, some some small print, and that is, I think, uh, until we are all reading everything on our phone and can be just given the, the little, um, uh, the little uh, URL to click on or the link, then that's going to have to be how it is. And on that conclusive note, let us now uh, exit the business of gaming. And finally, we come to one of our segments, Without Equal, Consulting Occultist, in which I slack off by throwing the name of an occultist at Ken, and he picks it and bats it back at me with uh, extreme erudition. So this time I thought that we would uh, go back a little further in time than we have so far. Uh, we've concentrated mostly on sort of 19th and early 20th century occultists, and I thought we would go back to the Elizabethan era and have Ken give us the 101 on John D. Okay, John D. is uh, famously uh, Queen Elizabeth's court wizard, um, which, to the extent that Queen Elizabeth bothered herself with such nonsense, he was. Uh, he cast the horoscope, for example, for her coronation, which was just, you know, good, sensible insurance back in the day, I'm sure. And uh, he uh, published a number of books uh, justifying her attempt to colonize the New World, uh, on sort of both occult and uh, general historical grounds. He was a, a polymath, uh, as people who could read Latin and had um, uh, a large range of correspondence tended to be back in that uh, palmy era. So he was not just a occultist, he was also a mathematician. Uh, according to people who know way more about both John Dee and math than I do, he came sort of uh, as close as anyone did until Newton or Leibniz to almost figuring out calculus. So he was no slouch on that uh, level. He uh, was a cosmographer. He did early maps. He uh, did practical navigation work. Uh, and he, of course, was an astronomer and therefore an astrologer because there wasn't a lot of difference back in the 16th century. And, and in general, there weren't differences between the idea of a hard rationalist science and the occult that they were all, you know, at that time, I think probably to a large extent, they were all seen as part of a unified existence and that the fact that you were an expert mathematician and also uh, knew a thing or two about summoning were not at all contradictory. They were harmonized elements. No, absolutely, because uh, the notion for people who were um, uh, 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 smart fellows back in the day was that God had set down various rules by how the, the world worked. And the more of those rules you figured out, 
the better you are going to be at sort of understanding and comprehending God's creation, and that understanding and comprehending God's creation then led you back into a fuller understanding of religion, that that was sort of the whole point of everything. And so uh, when people are figuring out the sort of the mathematical underpinnings, uh, and this is before Galileo, so the, the, even the concept of physical law is sort of murky, but there's natural law is, is a concept you know, that goes back to the, uh, the Thomistic uh, guys in the, in the medieval period. But, um, but when you're figuring out the math underlying the universe, that becomes a really exciting discovery that everything can be explained by math. And so when D is using math, he's using his math to make maps. He's using his math to, to sort of expand the frontiers of mathematical knowledge. He's using his math to predict eclipses and to predict um, astrological occurrences and to plot orbits. And he's using his math uh, via the Kabbalah to sort of figure out the mathematical underpinnings of, of the magical half of God's creation, because, of course, the world, as everyone who's in it knows, is sort of split between the things you can, you know, taste and touch and run into in the in the dark room and the things that you feel that have no obvious cause, you know, religious ecstasy, love, hunches, uh, uh, you know, your, your neighbor giving you the stink eye. None of those can be quantified. You feel all of them just as much. And so in this pre-Descartian universe, it's all considered part of the same Megillah. And there is no sort of mind-body duality in that sense. What you're doing is you're mapping every aspect of, of divine creation. And uh, for D, uh, he became fascinated and excited by the notion that he was able to mathematically figure out uh, what the angels were up to and summon uh, these sort of sub-angelic entities called ethers, or atheers, if you are trying to say it the way it's spelled, um, so that he can talk to them and figure out uh, sort of the, the, the physical laws or the metaphysical laws underpinning uh, the, the divine creation of the universe. So speaking of how people got to be so cool, uh, what is the career path uh, that leads you to become uh, the court sorcerer for Queen Elizabeth? Um, he basically, <laughs> you know, back in that day, if you read Latin, then you were automatically, uh, you know, it, it was called... Um, uh, uh, you you were in a special legal category. Even you were, you could be tried as a as a priest because no one who uh, who read Latin uh, was assumed to be a layman. And so once you are a um, uh, a, a Latin student, you, you know, doors open for you. And there's not so many people who are part of that world that they won't hang out with you. So he goes to the continent. He he talks to people like uh, Gerhard Mercator. He meets um, uh, Jerome Cardan, who is a, a mathematician. He's one of the founders of statistics, and he's also uh, an occultist. I knew there was an occult angle to statistics. Yeah. Oh God. Yes. And um, uh, he uh, basically becomes a professor at Oxford. Or he's offered a, rather a professorship at Oxford. He doesn't take that. And he, you know, as as you do when you've got a new reign coming in. Uh, and remember, he's sort of finishing grad school, basically in our in our terms. Um, in um, uh, right as Queen Elizabeth is is sort of taking over the country. And, it, it, you know, everyone who knows something is, is seeing that this is going to be the new thing. And obviously, every smart person wants to get in on that rising, uh, that rising tide. And by being a, a person with mathematical knowledge who is also um, uh, uh, generally uh, well-educated and well-rounded, he winds up casting horoscopes when rich people ask him to, which opens you up, of course, to being um, charged with, with witchcraft uh, by someone who doesn't like you. So it's sort of a... It's sort of a political act in those days to, to cast horoscopes for rich folks. So that's what he's been doing because he has those skills and because, you know, then as now, 
um, uh, knowing Latin and higher mathematics is not necessarily a uh, ticket to the to the big time. And because he is a horoscopist, and he gets um, uh, arrested by uh, Bloody Mary, the, the 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 queen before Elizabeth, for being a horoscopist, when he's released after she is um, uh, uh, dead, uh, then uh, he is automatically in a position to be seen by the Elizabethan court as loyal to her, not to Bloody Mary. So that's why she offers him the job of casting the horoscope for her uh, coronation. And then, you know, again, he's a personable guy. He's described as good-looking by people who know him. Uh, he, you know, he, he, he talks a good game. He, he's Welsh, so he probably sounds kind of uh, fun, uh, you know, a lilting uh, voice. Uh, you, you imagine he has good presence. Uh, and so, you know, Elizabeth is an uh, interested woman. She's intellectually vastly superior to virtually everyone in uh, the royal uh, houses of Europe. And so she's interested in this guy who is, you know, if you ask anyone in Britain who's the smartest guy around, they're probably going to say John Dee. And so she, you know, sort of puts him to practical work. Uh, mapping, you know, the uh, the um, uh, the area she wants to send uh, chartered companies out to explore. This is when people think that you can sail around uh, uh, North America, find the Northwest Passage, and get to China and make a fortune. And so she wants to know about that. She wants him to make maps of the northern approaches to the oceans. Uh, she's also got people looking for the Northeast Passage around Russia, and so he does some of those maps. He's uh, sort of on the board of directors for some of these companies, uh, the Muscovy Company and such. And, and basically, it's by knowing a lot of navigation that he is able to sort of maintain his position at court. And the astrology, it's almost more of a sideline in that, you know, as long as you've got straight work doing maps and doing navigation books, you don't necessarily need to cast them under horoscopes. But he's fundamentally interested in, again, the mathematical un underpinnings of the universe. And that is what he sort of thinks of the, of the navigation as funding the real work, the, the sort of the pure research part of his job. So when it comes to bending history, the notion of an occultist cartographer opens up all sorts of possibilities. Like, for example, the fa uh, you could imagine that the vistas that he mapped, he was in fact bringing into being unknowingly through his occult working. Right, or, or knowingly through his occult working. I mean, I have in Suppressed Transmission, I've sort of uh, played on the fact that he was buddies with uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, uh, to imply that uh, the Roanoke colony is an occult uh, activity, that the founding of America uh, it, it, back in 1585 is a is a fundamentally magical activity, or, of course, the fact that since he's uh, tied into some of the people who are tied into the people who were buddies with Shakespeare, it, it's a longer stretch than it is to uh, Sir Walter Raleigh, certainly, um, that uh, Shakespeare's dramaturgies are in some ways... Uh, interpretations of the higher truths that Dee is discovering about the angels and the atheists and the way that the, the, the magic fundamentally works. So, yeah, I mean, Dee is a universal joint for any kind of craziness and has been pretty much, you know, since his, um, uh, since his death uh, in 1603. I'm sorry, he died in 1609. That was my mistake. Elizabeth died in 1603. So to, to what extent is uh, Prospero and the Tempest uh, inspired by John Dee? Prospero, people certainly look at Prospero and they and they see John Dee there. Uh, he was his big period of fame and um, uh, and sort of the, the the high water mark of his influence at court is something like thirty years before uh, Shakespeare writes The Tempest. Shakespeare writes The Tempest 
in like 1612 or thereabouts. So it's it's after D has died. Um, he's uh, he's probably a model, but even by 1612, he is as, as I say, he's so much of a of a symbol and a and a and a and an ideal type of the wizard that you know pretty much if you are thinking of a wizard right now and you're and you're thinking of Ian McKellen as Gandalf, you're thinking of the image of the wizard that was you know, floating around, a lot of which came from the fact that John Dee had a hooky nose and a long white beard and wore robes and sounded Welsh. And those are how we think wizards are, because when people are sort of creating that uh, that archetype in, in popular fiction, uh, in, in, or in English language popular fiction, obviously the wizards in Cervantes don't sound anything like John Dee. So you mentioned that casting horoscopes was a political act, and certainly the court of Queen Elizabeth was a political place, how did he fare in that hot house of intrigue? Um, he, you know, he, he kept his job for a while, but I suspect that, you know, once you've had your first horoscope cast, you don't, you know, you certainly don't want the next one because once you've had your coronation predicted, it's all downhill from there. Uh, he, uh, he hangs out with sort of the, the up and coming, um, intellectually interested, uh, nobles, uh, around uh, the court of uh, the Earl of Northumberland, uh, uh, Henry Percy, who is known as the Wizard Earl. The, sadly, Henry Percy is also, I think, ninth in the line for the English throne, and he is from a Catholic, a strongly Catholic family. And so hanging around with Henry Percy is also a political act, and it's one that is anti-Queen Elizabeth, not pro. And I suspect that may be part of why he started looking for other patrons. And one of the patrons that he got was a Polish um, a nobleman named Count Lasky, who uh, invited him and his buddy um, uh, Edward Kelly, who was sort of Dee's scryer because he got such great results from Edward Kelly, uh, telling him about what the angels were saying, that he used Kelly instead of, uh, you know, the standard uh, young virgin girl or small idiot boy that you normally scryed with. And uh, sadly, Edward Kelly was also um, uh, something of a... Uh, of a con man. He'd been imprisoned for forgery, I think, at one point, and uh, certainly took advantage of the fact that he and Dee are in Central Europe, knowing nobody else, to suggest a uh, angelically, um, uh, uh, an angelically endorsed program of wife swapping, which even at the time sounded ridiculous to people. It is weird how many <laughs> times the angels go, go for that. Again, the angels, you would think, would have other stuff on their minds. Even if they wanted you to swap wives, you'd think they'd have bigger fish to fry. You know, and having that be their priority, that should be a sign, I think. If you're talking to the angels and they suggest wife swapping, you may not have been talking to angels. But, uh, but anyway, uh, while he is in, uh, in Europe, um, or on the, on the continent of Europe with Albert Lasky, and then um, he, he doesn't ever become a Rudolf II's uh, court magician because that job is over full even then. He was the emperor of Prague who built the, the, the Chamber of Wonders, and be, between being crazy and being paranoid, had lots of jobs for wizards. Um, Ed Kelly and he got along like a house on fire after Dee eventually left. But... Uh, but the, the 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 religious situation on the continent was even more fraught than it was in Elizabethan England, and every time anyone uh, would hook up with D, that was opening themselves up to charges of of dealing uh, with uh, with religiously dubious uh, Protestants, and also with charges of dealing with you know demons and such. And so it becomes 
a more and more tenuous position. He's getting older. Uh, he doesn't have the same, you know, network of contacts, not as many Cambridge graduates in, uh, in Central Europe, I guess. And then, um, uh, after the, the, uh, after the wife swapping situation sort of sours him on his buddy, uh, Ed Kelly, he goes back to England in, uh, 1589. At, at which point he's really yesterday's news. I mean, it's, it's like, you know, uh, trying to do a comeback tour. Uh, and again, he's so long lived and Queen Elizabeth is so long lived that you sort of conflate these things, but his big period is, is 30 years before in a time when, you know, uh, court fashions are, are changing by the decade and people's generational memory just is not, uh, it's, it's not, uh, the, the, there's not the same sort of, the, they're not the assumption that someone's going to live to be 70 or 80 or whatever. So you're, you're sort of, you know, tapping your wrist saying, what, you still around? And indeed, when he did come back, all of his friends had sort of helped themselves to the books in his library, and he spent pretty much the last 30 years of his life trying to get them to give them back. And, and if that's not a Heitian tragedy, I don't know what is. Well, I, I was trying to think of, of something that would, um, uh, that would bring it home to you, but it's as though, um, you and I went off to Central Europe for three years, uh, to uh, hang out with the Bohemian King, and when we came back, our friends had helped themselves to the contents of your DVD collection. That is a, a shocking tale of horror, and I'm, I must avert my thoughts from it. Exactly. Um, so speaking of pop culture, uh, John Dee, of course, has been represented in pop culture various times. Recently, there was a uh, an quasi-opera by Damon Albarn that got kind of mixed reviews. You can find the uh, album, which is uh, kind of uneven on various... Uh, stream uh, streaming sites. Uh, what are your favorite representations of John D in pop culture? Uh, my favorite uh, John D in pop culture is uh, probably uh, the work of Peter Aykroyd. He wrote a, a novel called The House of Doctor D. I'm a fan of Peter Aykroyd anyway because he is uh, he is he's like me, only sort of grown up about it and um, <laughs> uh, a, a literary lion of of the British set. And he's an, an, an obsessive uh, goof who, who writes about English history and, and magical coincidence and crazy uh, etymology and everything. I mean, he's sort of like uh, the, the, the classy Guardian reading version of, of Ram Davidson, my other sort of uh, intellectual hero. And I, I, I really like The House of Dr. D. I think it's a terrific uh, novel, and I just enjoy Ackroyd. That's not so much the... Um, uh, you know, it, it, it's no The Tempest, but it's, but it's darn good, and I'm, I'm a big fan. So what influence does Dee have on later occultists? Well, the thing is that Dee is, is not the same stream as uh, the Golden Dawn and these guys because he's so much earlier. He predates, like I was saying, he predates Newton. He predates the differential between science and magic. He predates uh, even the, the philosophical differenti differentiation between uh, sensory reality and uh, thought reality. You know, he's, um, uh, he, he's, he's sort of before all of those. And so his approach, his magical approach, involving as it does so much personal communication with the angels and so much, you know, hard math is not something that really caught on. D is, I think, in modern occultism, more of a symbol than he is an intellectual forebear now. He's sort of, and, and again, this is what he was used as, uh, as a club to beat, um, uh, occultism to death with. Because, you know, once you've gone off to Central Europe and, and engaged in wife swapping, you become a terrific um, uh, 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 target for people who want to separate science and magic. Right. But, of course, if you want to be an occultist, you're sort of more interested in the dark side and the wife swapping side than in uh, either angels 
or having to do algebra. Well, the, the thing about um, uh, the wife swapping is that, uh, I mean, I, my theory is that if you are really interested in wife swapping, there are shorter routes than occultism. You want to be naughty. And yeah. being naughty does not uh, make you want to uh, talk to angels so much as you want to talk to elementals and possibly even demons. And you so certainly don't want to do something really math-heavy. Well, I mean, I think that's slightly underselling some occultists. I mean, plenty of occultists get into it with the highest of motives, and, and lots of them are still fans of the Kabbalah, which involves uh, some degree of math. It's not the, the heavy algebra, certainly, or trig that, that D is involved in, but it's still math. Uh, I think that part of it is just that, you know, the intellectual sympathies of this 15th and 16th century that are D's uh, real um, uh, stomping ground are not the same ones that people have in the, in the modern era or even the, the Victorian era. And so there's a, it, it's harder to sort of trace. I mean, part of what he does emblematize is that there is a secret knowledge, that there is a hidden nature to the world, and that he is as close as you're going to get to finding that secret knowledge, that hidden nature of the universe through intellectual effort and through magical effort on Earth. And so his career becomes like a type of the Rosicrucian myth, that there are certain people who are so smart and so well-informed about the true nature of the world that they can move through both worlds. And the Rosicrucian myth, again, begins in the same post-Descartes uh, uh, universe where we have to start separating these things out. Suddenly the occult world is a hidden part of the world. It's not a normal part of the world. And D is, is really, he stands right on that boundary, because by the time he's dead, uh, Galileo has begun experimenting, and Kepler has begun differentiating astrology from astronomy, uh, even in his own mind. And, uh, you know, Newton, by the time he comes around, his alchemy is secret. He doesn't publish his alchemical work uh, to the same degree that, say, D publishes his magical work. And, and, that's, and that's really just, that's like a 70-year period. So, so D is um, uh, sort of that, that last moment. But as a symbol, uh, like I say, as the symbol of what a wizard looks like, as a symbol of, um, uh, of, uh, of, of sort of the, the, the intellectual exploration and of the notion of a secret world behind ours, I think D is still, uh, still has a lot of impact. He just doesn't have a lot of impact in the terms that no one that I know of is paying any attention to what he considered his, his masterpiece the Monas Hieroglyphica, the Hieroglyphic Monad, which is that he discovered a symbol that if you thought about it long enough, you could figure out everything about the world. Um, and you can't, it turns out. <laughs> so is this symbol available to us, or is oh, yes, it lost it, it, in the midst of time? No, no, he, he published a big old book, and the book is available. Um, uh, I'm, I'm sure it's been reprinted by Llewellyn or somebody, but you can go on the Wikipedia, and the Monas Hieroglyphica is right there, the, his awesome little glyph. Um, it looks sort of like a combination of all the uh, astrological symbols for the planets. Uh, it, it, it's, uh, it, it would make a terrific emoticon or avatar for people who are looking for one, I'm sure. Um, but in terms of figuring out why that is the Kabbalistic representation of all creation, I think that um, uh, you know you can you can look at uh, at Star Wars or uh, or pictures of Mila Kunis. And, and have just as much chance of figuring out what God is up to. Uh, well, on, uh, on that note, as everyone rushes off to contemplate this uh, symbol and see what it tells them about uh, the upcoming election or perhaps the stock market, I think it's time for us to uh, once again exit our exciting podcast. Okay. 
Stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Dork Tower. Drive Through RPG. Pro Fantasy Software. And Pelgrane Press. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Find our website where you can leave approbations and aneurysms at kenandrobintalkaboutstuff.com. Or subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Height. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time when, once again, we will talk about stuff. Stuff.